1938, my dad sort of gives you something interesting to think about. You can now subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean, making it even easier to join us. The topic for today is great works of art. In this episode, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Jeff Frederick, is with UNC Pembroke Art Faculty, artists Colleen Ringrose and Robert Epps, and art historians Nancy Palm Hookney and yours truly, Richard Gay. Now get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. According to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, 24% of the U.S. adult population visited a museum or an art gallery in 2017, representing a slight growth over the previous year. In 2016, 14% of 8th graders visited an art museum, a gallery, or an exhibit with their class. Students were even more likely to have visited an art museum or exhibit on their own other than just with their class. In short, we want art in our lives and in the lives of our children, and we take positive actions to make this happen. Why do we go? Why do we hope that our children go? Art transcends so many critical areas of a life well lived. Art comforts and calms, it soothes, it inspires. Just the same, art provokes and angers. It takes us to places we don't want to go, but maybe should. It takes us away from where we are to someplace else we'd like to be providing us an outlet, an escape, a diversion, or a trip to somewhere new and different. Art gives us permission to think differently. It creates questions and sometimes offers answers. It's beautiful and unnerving and luxurious and necessary. Art provides an opportunity for us to expand our horizons, to pause, and to consider. And all of these characteristics and a thousand more serve to support a person's own quest to define their own sense of self and their own vision of a society as it could be or as it should be. That, at least in part, is why we go to museums and galleries. Maybe that's even why we make art. From my admittedly lay perspective, going to an art museum is like cracking open a cold, frosty can of imagination. I want to know where the, what the artist was thinking, what they were responding to, and what they want me to see and to think. Much of the time, I leave without clear answers to these questions, which is half the fun of the entire visit. Lunch or heading off to get a beverage of your choice after leaving the gallery gives you and your museum companion an opportunity to talk about what you liked or didn't, what seemed impossibly hard to create and what didn't, and how certain works by the same artist fit together into a mosaic of her or his collective work. My wife and I never actually agree. Maybe I should say it this way, we rarely agree, on what was most interesting. That discussion, though, helps me to learn something from her perspective about a piece of art or an artist, or perhaps she occasionally learns something from me. The art we see, hear, or observe, then, leads to new vistas of thought. For us, it was a great museum trip if a day, a week, or a month later, something else crosses our mind's eye and draws us back to that painting, that drawing, that work of digital art, that tapestry, maybe even that architecture or ceramic or some other form of art that we saw in the gallery. But for me personally, admittedly, I lack the depth of understanding to distinguish great works of art from each other on a higher plane. But fortunately, we have some experts with us today that can talk us through what makes a work of art great, how their trained eyes consume the material, and what we might learn from them. Joining me today are Robert Epps, Richard Gay, Nancy Palm Puckner, 
and Colleen Ringrose. Welcome, everybody. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So let's start at the beginning. What makes a work of art great, and how would you define that? Well, Jeff, that's a very big question. There's a quote that I came across a few years ago um, for a class that I was teaching on contemporary art that has really stuck with me. It's a quote by Damien Hirst, who's a, a British artist who became like wildly popular in the 90s for um, submerge, submerging animals, namely a shark was the one that he was best known for in formaldehyde. Um, and he wrote this quote a number of years ago. He says, great art is when you come across an object and you have a fundamental, personal, one-on-one -on -one relationship with it and you understand something you didn't already understand about what it means to be alive. And what I love about that is that it's, it's broad enough to not define what specific stylistic or conceptual characteristics a work of art needs to have, but it also demands that a work of art has some sort of fundamental effect on you and your understanding of the world around you. And I think what also is so great about that goes back to what you said in your introduction about the fact that you and your wife are gonna have varying understandings, interpretations, reactions, but you can be open to those and you can learn from each other, which is exactly what I try to do with students in my classes. And then it's also something that stays with you that a month later you can be looking at something completely different and unrelated and you somehow understand it through the lens of that work of art that you saw. And I think that's what great art is. I don't think it fits any specific mold. I think it's something that sticks with you and it's something that somehow changes you. And that change can be huge, like you know, realizing how rampant racism is in America, or it can be tiny in terms of you know, how you experience one minute aspect of your life. But I think that change is, is the thing that's really fundamental and necessary. Yeah, I, I, I think that when I was thinking about this question, it came down to, it wasn't just like the history, the context, the talent, the this, it was that, in, ineffable thing in art that you cannot actually say. It's the je ne sais quoi, the gestalt of it, that you, we're basically needing to talk about a thing that exists, but it doesn't exist. <laughs> you can't pin it down, and that, that makes great art. We tend to think of art, define art as professionals very broadly, and when we teach in a, a survey class for students, on the first day of class, we tend to spend a lot of time with them talking about what is a work of art, how do we define it, and of course they tend to think of the more traditional media such as painting and sculpture, and so a part of the challenge is to get people to accept new forms of, of artwork, which is invented every day, and uh, so we tend to have a very broad definition of art. Uh, I think in the past, people thought of art as being something that was very ennobling of the individual. It left us profoundly changed in some way and perhaps led towards an improvement of society, but today we don't always think of it in those terms because we don't see things as linear. Uh, so many things are happening all at the same time, but I do think a really broad definition is very important. This is particularly important when we're talking about earlier uh, periods of time because of how people interacted with the objects was very different than it is today. I mean, when we think about art with a capital A, we think of stuff usually, this is an idea of going out of the Renaissance, right? Earlier stuff, it was more about craftsmanship and how the object functioned. What was its role? Was it, um, 
something that helped man communicate with the divine in some way? Was it an object that showed the uh, importance of a great individual? Uh, so uh, I really encourage everyone to take a really broad definition as we think about think about art. Yeah, I love that you you brought up the you know kind of historical man or humanity and and such. And as I I love Scott McCloud, um, his looking at at defining art, which is also extremely broad. Which basically the the simple definition for him is anything that doesn't have to do with reproduction or uh, self preservation. Uh, and he gives a, a whole little uh, comic strip because he's a comics historian and. and uh, analyst and whatnot, and creator, and he even has a caveman running away from a saber-toothed tiger, diving out of the way at the last minute, saber-toothed either goes over the cliff, and so the thing is, okay, what does the guy do now? Does he search for food? Does he search for a mate? No, he sticks his tongue out at the now-dead tiger off the cliff, and that becomes <laughs> art <laughs> in and of itself. Well, I think another really thing that's important for us to think about as we talk about art in a general way is you had mentioned the idea of meaning. Where's the meaning coming from? What did the artist mean? And and that's, this is something we talk to our students about a lot. Do they have their intentions for the work of art and how successful they are in communicating that to a general public can vary greatly. And some of, some of them just don't care. There are many artists that don't care if you get their personal notion. And that brings us to this thought about where is meaning generated. It's the, meaning, the, the object itself doesn't have meaning. It only has the meaning that we give it as viewers. So everyone's reaction, I think, uh, to a work of art is very valid and it's very personal. I think there's a, some, a distinction we should make as we think about uh, art. There's the appreciation of art that everyone has, that or may or may not have, when they see that that object initially and have that gut reaction to it, or they may just gloss over it and not, not, it might not resonate with them at all. And then there's the way professionally trained people think about works of art and how they put them within a, a broader context. And I think uh, back to our podcast that we had year, uh, a while back on uh, great books. Many, many people have read Moby Dick, and people have their own interpretation of Moby Dick, and they enjoy Moby Dick for the narrative. But somebody who's trained in literary criticism and theoretical approaches to addressing a text, they're going to have a very different read of that object. And I think it's the same with works of art. And I think it's very important as we work with students to, to, to encourage them to hang on to that initial reaction that they have, the love or the hate of it, but then also encourage them to move beyond that into a more academic thinking of the work in a, a, a bit more of a uh, inclusive and perhaps different way that they've never considered. So maybe even one of the defining traits of art is its versatility, is that it can become organic, it can grow on you over time, your ability to appreciate it or not can change over time, and art, the same work of art, could appeal or not appeal to lots of different people for a list of reasons as long as you're armed. I was visiting the Guggenheim Museum in the 80s, and it's a long, winding thing, and I'm winding down with my friend, and it's on modern art, and there's this family behind me, and the, the husband walks, I assume husband, little kid, and the mom, he walks up to nine tiles that are laid out in a grid, and he goes, that's it, honey, we're out of here. <laughs> and he marched out of that museum, <laughs> and to this day, I remember that, and I thought, he felt so excluded and made fun of by these tiles. And I just wanted to say, it's like when you arrange your books on the shelf, it's just about the color and the form and quiet and just watch it and see the spaces between it. It's not trying to make yeah. fun of you, but man, he wasn't the best. <laughs> it was a bad. 
So as a historian, we, we're often thinking about, to understand a historical actor or even an interpretation sometime later, we need to know that moment. What's the moment that that person was living in and why she or he was doing what they were doing? Is that true of the artist as well? Do you need to know the, the moment in time that the artist is working and what she or he is reacting to? I think in some regard that it is very important, especially when we're talking about you know, different historical periods that are centuries apart. Um, but many contemporary artists um, argue, well, many argue that their meaning is, is incredibly important. And if you're not open to their meaning, then you're just not going to experience the work of art in the way that you should. But there are equally a number of contemporary artists that that also argue that meaning that you can't control that meaning that the that there's a separation between what an artist conceives of what an artist creates and what a viewer experiences and that those things are distinct from one another and that there's no fundamental relationship between them that what the person creating the work conceives of um, exists completely independently of what the viewer experiences. And so I think that to some extent meaning, or perhaps more importantly, context, because work of, works of art are such a great way to sort of understand what issues the world is facing at any given moment in history, but I think the actual experience of the work is not as heavily dependent on the intended meaning of the artist because everyone brings their own you know, set of experiences and understandings to the work of art that's gonna drastically change what that experience is. You know, we get the whole death of the author yet again uh, <laughs> idea that's out there. Well, it, it, is it true in visual art the same way it might be with the written word or with music that Someone who produced something years later will say, what in the world was I thinking at that time? <laughs> I used to think this was great, but now I've decided that this is not who I, who I am or what I was. There are examples of artists destroying their other work. They'll yeah. just rip it up and get rid of it. They don't see it as part of their legacy and actually want to erase it if they're sort of conscious of their image that they're wanting to produce on themselves. But even the pulp artist Frank Frazetta was notorious for running down into his own museum and grabbing his paintings and working on them and his wife had to had to stop him right. because he was like, no, no, these are it's it's done, it's there, it's going for sale or so. Yeah, yeah he, he just kept wanting to go at it. Um, more practitioners than not are rarely satisfied with with what they've done. They you know always hate your old stuff. Yeah, there's a um, there's a Lumbee artist that I've been writing about a lot lately, Hattie Ruth Miller, and I I love her work and I adore her as a person, but I will look at her work and you know take notes and take pictures and go and write and and you know do all of this work and then i go back and see her again and the paintings have completely changed and it drives me nuts and i i love what she does and i love how she's constantly working and and everything is always in flux and there's constant progress and change but as a writer it it <laughs> makes my job a little bit more difficult but going back to your initial question jeff about the idea of the important of the historical context of the object i think if we're trying to understand how an object functioned when it was new it's essential uh, the way that we view a renaissance object today is very different than the way that they were viewed in the past 
for one thing, we have access to it, though I guess some people <laughs> in, in the Renaissance, my family would have never had access to any of this beautiful art, uh, or very little access, perhaps in a church or something. But I do think the context is, is essential when we're looking at earlier works of art where we're trying to understand them when they're initially created. One of the interesting things about studying art is that the art doesn't, the, the art and its meaning doesn't stop after it's created, right? It continues to evolve through time. And compare it to culture of that Exa time. Yeah, we can compare it to the culture of the past, but we can also compare it to culture today. Things resonate today in different ways than they had in the past. Uh, and then there's the whole trajectory of the history of art. I mean, what, what's, you know, for the longest time we kept looking at art as we studied this, what's new, what's, what's being done new, and who's the first to do this and the first to do that. We don't do that as much as we used to in the past. I don't think as art historians, we're, we're much more inclusive and we cast a much broader net. But for a long time, that was the important narrative of who is, mm -hmm. who is uh, advancing art, who's purifying art to its, its pure essence that's gonna lead us into some type of uh, spiritual uh, realm. Um, one of the things we, we don't always think about when we look at uh, abstract art that was produced in the mid-20th mid century, a lot of it has a lot of uh, very religious connotations to it. Uh, even things like black squares that it's hard for us. Uh, yeah, Rothko, uh, yeah, yeah. Rothko is incredibly yeah. about the body and the spirit, and when you stand in front of those works, um, it's speaking to your whole body. It's not just a mental yeah. process. Yeah. And part of that's because of the size. They're yep. so large. And, yeah. and the way he yeah. layered the paint. Yeah. And I remember reading that Rothko was very interested in how one encountered the work of art, and so he would mm -hmm. manipulate how they were shown in the gallery so oh, that yeah. you were confronted with them in, in your face, large mm -hmm. objects. So um, I think it, there, that's one of the wonderful things about art is that you can approach it from so many different ways. Uh, you can uh, approach it from, the, from a personal perspective. You can approach it from the perspective of, of a Marxist or a feminist or a post-structuralist or somebody who's studying post-colonialism or uh, there's just, it's, and it's you so can well You can deconstruct it formally as well Completely. as an artist. And hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit more too because I think that's, that's one of the great skill that I would encourage everyone to develop is the idea of slowing down and looking at a work of art so that you can actually see it. We're so bombarded with images today. Uh, going down the freeway, there are images everywhere, and that just wasn't the case many years ago, right? Um, well, let's pick up on that in a second, but I want to follow up on something that many of you guys have talked about, which I would loosely describe as themes of continuity and change. Mm -hmm. So what is the timeless, immutable fact or uh, reality of how one views and enjoys and appreciates <laughs> art in what are some of the things that are different in the way art is both produced and enjoyed today versus what you were talking about as recently as mid-century? Well, the postmodernist in me totally disagrees with that statement of any <laughs> universality. <laughs> I think we need a philosopher in here to tell us what is truth and everlasting. I mean, that's, that's a much larger question than we can address. I think the internet has also opened art up to a lot of people it's flattened the playing field for a lot of people because they'll go on and they'll see somebody just posting things, their, their art, and the, the idea of the masterpiece gets very leveled out because people are like, oh, I love that, and I love that, and it's not the museum, and the museum telling them what high art is. Um, so it's very different for the people coming up today uh, in terms of art and what they think of art. Yeah. I think, though, to, to try to answer your question, Jeff, I would, I would return back to Nancy's uh, comment early on about how art, an art object impacts us in some way, it's changed. It's encouraged us to think about something in a different way. Um, 
we might not understand what our thoughts are about it, but it's having a true impact upon us. Right. And a lot of it's interpretation, too. I think that's something we really have to think about in uh, a lot of the con contemporary art world and uh, art over the 20th century becomes more and more about interpretation instead of the ability to fabricate a natural-looking object. It's, it becomes more about meaning and concepts and less about um, being able to draw a beautiful hand perfectly. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting we brought up Damien Hirst and what's he doing now? He's doing drip and, and splatter painting. And, <laughs> like and I dots. see how many, yeah, <laughs> how many uh, folks have an Etsy shop or whatnot where they're yeah, pouring the acrylic paint or yep. whatnot. Yeah, yeah. It's become mm -hmm. a hobby as well at the same time. And so here's... Kai and the Lord. Yeah, exactly brought together, as you said, flattened. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see that. But at the same time, we still throw how much uh, importance on the Mona Lisa, which was drawing that hand and, and getting that smile, um, and, among other things. And I would add, not the best painting from that period. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, talk through your process a little bit as trained artists and, and, and art historians and, and people who live in the world of art every day. Where does your eye go first when you look at a work of art, maybe start with one that you haven't really observed before, and then start with where does your eye go when it's a very familiar piece of, um, of work that, that you're encountering all over again? I think my eye goes where the artist tells me it should go. I mean, <laughs> and I'll let them explain their particular technique. Follower. I tell you. <laughs> Visual hierarchy. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Um, well, for me, if it's a familiar painting, it's like a giant just hug. It's like the whole thing just hugs me. And um, and it's like I go into the thing and I just sort of sit down and work and, and explore other things. Oh, I like these things. Or I just, just a, it's just like an old friend, you know, talks to me and might say new things. Um, something I haven't seen before, I generally look at, um, I have a more abstract brain, so I tend to look at um, the color and the form and the movement. And sometimes I forget that it makes something. But <laughs> occasionally my students have to go, but that actually makes something. Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> I feel like artists are great manipulators. Uh, my comment about my eye goes where the artist tells me to yeah. go is that yeah. the artists are manipulating those elements you just yeah. mentioned, among many others, to encourage me to look in specific places in yeah. the work of art. Or not yeah. to. Yeah. Um, some pieces are for the head, you know, some for the heart, and some for the body. Yeah. I, I, for me, that's how I would think. But things like line, um, Jeff can move your eye around a composition, whether real actual lines or implied lines, or things that sort of uh, um, staggered along in a composition to suggest depth or not. Also, contrast is very important. Um, <laughs> things like uh, a bright, warm color, like the color red, might go to your eye, uh, particularly if it's contrasted against uh, other colors that are much cooler. Though that the entire entire work is red, red's not going to attract your eye. But in a painting like some blue that is quite red, it's going to pull your eye towards it. So there, there's lots of things that artists do to manipulate our eye, both consciously and subconsciously. Many artists are working on the subconscious level, and one of the things I encourage our students to do is to slow down and look and try to figure out how the artist is manipulating. Um, the hardest part is slowing down. It really is. Yeah, we're so eager to get that visceral reaction. Because the surface is what we see so quickly. Um, and sometimes it's hard for folks to get past that. 
And so the idea of really thinking about the craft, thinking about the structure, and getting all the way back to the idea and purpose behind the work is so important um, as opposed to only reacting to the surface. Yeah, where people tend to be in the symbolic realm. Oh, house, person, travel, landscape, <laughs> sunset, and it's all in the symbolic part of your brain. And you have to slow down to go into the part where it covers the particular personality. Leave your watch and your phone at home. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Take it all in. Yeah. It's hard for everyone to slow down, even yeah. artists. <laughs> and I encourage our, our people to take time to sort of look at something and ask themselves, how did the artist do that? I mean, it makes me feel sad, right? This work of art may make me feel sad or happy, and I'm like, you can ask yourself, well, why does this work of art make me feel happy or sad? What What are the elements within the work that suggest happiness or sadness? I mean, you could you could take that visceral reaction, but there are things that are that are in the work or around the work or that you associate with the work that could lead to that feeling of joy or sorrow. And I think part of slowing down is to is to for people to reflect on what those things are inside of them. What, yeah. What is that? You know, then you then the person is more expanded. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. You're listening to 30 Brave Minutes, a broadcast service of the College of Arts and Sciences at UNC Pembroke. I'm Jeff Frederick, and our panel includes Nancy Palm Puckner, Richard Gay, Robert Epps, and Colleen Ringrose. We're talking about great works of art today. When did you individually know that art was important to you and that you might want to spend your career in the middle of it? Well, I didn't really grow up going to art museums, and art was not really a significant part of my life, which... I, you know, that's unfortunate for many reasons. I feel like I've made up for it in my adulthood, though. And nothing, you know, nothing against my parents. They, that just wasn't a big part of our upbringing. Um, when I went to college and I was bouncing around different majors, and I think I started out in accounting, and um, at some point I ended up in industrial design. And for a design degree, I had to take a certain number of art history classes, and I absolutely hated every aspect of the design part of it, but I loved my art history classes. And the thing that always sticks out to me, and I ended up writing my thesis about it, um, I was also taking a course on American history, and I was um, learning a lot about Native American genocide and learning a lot about the way that the United States was settled. And then I was also taking a course learning at the same time about the art that was being created while all of that was happening. So I was learning about Hudson River School landscape painting and these very beautiful pastoral, you know, calming, you know, paintings of, of vistas and, and these beautiful, um, just expansive horizons. And I, I just wondered why the artwork of the time didn't fit with the politics of the time. And I ended up writing my thesis about it uh, as an undergrad. Um, and I think that was the moment for me where I realized that 
art was a very uh, significant part of history that that tells us a lot about history, but often also um, tells us about the history that um, perhaps the uh, you know dominant society or dominant culture wants to be told. And so I think that was really the moment for me where I decided I didn't want to design anything. I didn't want to study history. I didn't want to, you know, add numbers. I wanted to learn more about art and learn more about what it tells us about all of these different moments in history, but then how those things that also seem to be hidden and sort of covered up will also kind of surface in interesting ways if we just sort of tease them out a little bit. Um, well, my trajectory, I grew up with parents who built things. They weren't artists, but um, they would build things and make things, and my mother would learn to play instruments by ear, and so I grew up in a house where people just made things. That's just what you did, and I would always, like, they had a junk drawer. I would take it apart, and I would make sculptures when I was growing up, <laughs> and then I'd put them back away in the junk drawer, but I think the defining moment was probably when I was in high school, and I told my biology teacher, because we were learning the periodic table, and I said, that's interesting, and I can see you really, really think this is important. However, I would like you to organize the world through color and form. And th so that's not meaningful to me. So this is the way I think, and I'll hope I get past your class. <laughs> and I, did, I was good at laughs. It's <laughs> a great story. Because you got to make things. But that was pretty much the death knell. I was just going to be an artist. <laughs> I, uh, I took a gen ed course as uh, an undergraduate and it just changed my life. It was, you know, many people complain about a gen ed curriculum and how it can slow down one's trajectory towards one's career goal and, and stuff, but it, I find it extremely important to a quality liberal arts education. And I took one art history class as a, as a requirement and it literally just changed my whole life. It was like, I want to do that. <laughs> And part of the reason I loved it is for some of the reasons we've been talking today about how we can learn about ourselves and learn about other cultures and uh, we can study art of the past and art of, of today. And, and I really believe that if um, there's a, a, a topic you're interested in, you can find a work of art in, that in some ways engages that topic. And if it doesn't exist, we should make it. Right. So I, I, I truly believe there, there's something in the study of art for absolutely everybody. <clears throat> How about you, Rob? Sorry, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, thinking about that, the idea of letting college give you that time to, to get all that information, to spread out and see all those different things and, and spread your vistas is, is such a great thing. Um, you know, I taught a long time ago at a, at a for-profit college, and everything, you, you know, so much about get this done, result, or, you know, what's the, what's the end result, nothing else, and no room for anybody to expand, especially at such a critical time in their, in their student life. So, you know, the idea of being at a university where you can do that is a, a great thing. Um, sorry for the tangent there, but, uh, <laughs> but going back, I, you know, kind of a strange, another kind of strange thing, I, my father worked with a, a, a summer camp um, down on the coast. It was all about sailing, but they had arts and crafts, and every summer for me became more about going into that arts and crafts place, getting a sketchbook, and drawing in that sketchbook all summer long. <laughs> kind of the opposite of what the whole camp was supposed to be about, but, uh, but that's what, what was there for me. Um, so it was kind of ingrained 
all the way along, always, always making something all the way along. Um, the idea of, of actually doing and pursuing it as a career, um, probably, yeah, didn't make it until, until college, because uh, my undergraduate degree was actually music education, so I even went ahead and finished a whole other degree in something completely different. But in the midst of that, got into a group of guys that first wanted to make films, and then all of a sudden were like, oh, we're going to start a comic book company. Because <laughs> uh, we were crazy like that and, and whatnot, and and that that turned it over. Time for a pro tip for us lay folk. Give us uh, a thought about how we should engage art. One, maybe one uh, small thing that uh, each of us who are listening can take into the next gallery or museum we we go to. Um, I forget who said this, but I was listening to a lecture. Somebody famous, I'm sure, but they said. <laughs> Um, it was a critic, and he said when he goes into a show and he really is having a hard time getting something, getting from the show, he said, ask yourself the question, if I was the artist, why would I have made this? What would I have been trying to say or think or feel? And I've always thought that that was very useful. I would say let go of taste, that it's mm -hmm. not really that important whether you like it or hate it or love it try to move past that and and think more about what it means and why it was made and and how you can possibly let it change the way you think about one aspect of your life i would just say slow down slow down and take time to look i mean that's so important and we just don't do it enough yeah i think what nancy said is the the key to the idea of appreciation you know getting away from just taste and like what you like, what you don't like, and, and try to get to appreciation. And that probably entails knowing a little bit more about process and creation <laughs> and study and context and all of those different things that you know, then go to the slow down that Richard said. Um, I know a lot of them were the eye plots and the, the, the ear slits. Um, if they, <laughs> I sound like a grandma. Oh, you know, for the youngins. Um, if they would sit in front of a piece of art for the length of time it takes them to listen to their favorite song, they might get more from it. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's nice. Well, who are some individually the go-to artists that you just uh, really appreciate or you just totally find interesting? Who Who is in the top of your Mount Rushmore's? I think there's a, there's, um, there are artists that I appreciate on the level, kind of like what Colleen mentioned, like it's just, it just feels so good to see their art. Um, Kehinde Wiley, who does the yes, um, giant contemporary portraits of um, African-American figures in the uh, sort of guise of um, like 17th, 18th century portraits um, on a huge scale. And I was just to the North Carolina Museum of Art recently, so it's all the works in their permanent collection that keep jumping out at me, but Bill Viola and his um, his uh, digital work, his video. Talking about slowing down there, right? right? Exactly. Uh -huh. It just it just feels really good to to look at their work and just be able to appreciate it on that visceral level. But then there are other artists that I appreciate and have never, from the moment that I learned what they were doing, have never lost that appreciation. Um, simply because they're so thoughtful. Uh, Sherry Levine in the 1980s oh, yeah. started to do, uh, well, the series that she became most famous for was after Walker Evans, 
where she created a series of photographs of already existing photographs that were a part of a, a photo essay book that Walker Evans created in the 1930s. Of, Let us now praise famous men. Exactly, <laughs> part of the FSA um, uh, photography uh, projects that were funded by the federal government. And she, her philosophy, there are a lot of things that go into the concept of the work, but one of her, um, one of the main kind of driving components of the work is about the idea of originality and the idea that we are so, we have become so inundated with images that there's no such thing as complete originality anymore. And she takes that so far as to just directly appropriate an already existing artwork. And there are other types of, of critique that she's, you know, doing with this project. Um, but that idea is just stuck with me and I find it, I find it so conceptually gratifying and so powerful to think that there is no originality, that everything is somehow derivative. And um, it also is, lends itself to a lot of really good dialogue with students because they, it's one of those pieces and it's one of those ideas that they will slowly come around to. They initially just want to attack her for doing nothing more than <laughs> photographing someone else's work. And then they start to think about her ideas and start to think about what she's really trying to communicate with that. And it really gets them thinking and it really gets them thinking about their own originality and the, the ways that they appropriate in their work without perhaps even thinking about it. Um, so I think there are a couple of ways that I will experience and really have like go-to artists when I want to think and when I want to talk and when I just want to walk into a gallery mm -hmm. and just experience, you know, the five people moving in incredibly slow motion that just, it does, it feels like that very visceral, you know, like you're being, um, like I'm just being physically gratified by experiencing that work of art. Yeah, I agree with Bill Viola. I, I love his installations and um, just walking into the room, it's like, it's like you're, they're happening to you in a quiet space. Um, I, ha I also have like, uh, Rothko was one of my favorite artists. <laughs> and um, I, I just love that, that space that he creates. And um, it's just so simple with color, gales of color, and just the rough edges and allowing you to go into that painting and become part of it. Um, as far as looking at something, if I had it on my wall, <laughs> um, I really like George O'Keefe's paintings. Yeah. She's not in fashion right now, yeah. but I like her work. It's <laughs> not very sculptural. Yeah. You mentioned sort of go-to paintings. I think it depends on what point we're trying to make as, as educators. I mean, there's, it depends on what, what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to get across. When I, I think about your question, though, there are some works of art that I just truly love and have really touched me personally as, I, as I've looked at them. And um, one of them is uh, a work which is kind of funny because people who know me know that I'm not a particularly religious person, but one of my favorite works of art is a work of art that's uh, the Deposition by Roger van der Weyden, who mm -hmm. is a 15th century painter. And I actually I, I was uh, privileged enough to go to the Prado to see the painting, and it was just incredibly transformative. It's, mm -hmm. it's beautiful in reproduction, but uh, in, in the flesh, in, in the actual painting, it's truly amazing. It's like almost nine feet long, and it's an image of Joseph of Arimathea and his servant removing Christ's body from the cross, and and his body is is sort of collapsed, and they're they're cradling in his arms, and 
it sort of forms the shape of a, of a crossbow. And the painting was actually commissioned by a guild of archers. And up in the corner, there's actually a tiny crossbow that's depicted way up in the corner, very, very small. And beside uh, this very pale, thin body that's laying at an angle uh, is a depiction of the Virgin Mary. And scripturally, she's not mentioned as having this reaction, but she's right beside him. And their arms are falling sort of towards the center of, center of the composition, and they're, they're laying side by side with each other. And his is wounded, and hers is pale, and she's swooning. And so it, it, for, it's, it's, it's about his suffering and passion and her compassion and empathy. And for me, the work is really about uh, sorrow, and, uh, but it, it's extremely moving. But technically, it's a, it's a powerhouse because it, it was done with an oil painting technique, which means the artist was able to do incredible, uh, sur uh, express incredible surface texture by building up layers. And so when you look at it, the, the, the eyes are puffy, the red outlines, their tears that are reflecting light rolling down their cheeks, the fur on the coats look like fur, and the brocade looks like brocades, and the velvets look like velvets, right? And it's all depicted in a very unreal, shallow space, and it, uh, it's just otherworldly. And it's not shown in a realistic manner in any way. I mean, even though you can show reflections using this oil painting technique, in, a, in an incredible way. It's really not very naturalistic. The, the postures are very unnatural and they're crammed into a really shallow space and it's just an incredibly moving work. And I love the composition because on either end there are figures that sort of create parentheses that sort of frame the, the composition and it, it, every time I see that work of art it, it just really touches me. I want to go a totally different way. <laughs> and uh, Nina Paley's Sita uh, Sings the Blues. Uh, which is an animated film created basically by one woman. You know, she pretty much did everything uh, all herself. So a feature-length animated film created by one person, which is a monumental task in and of itself that recontextualizes bits of the uh, Indian epic, uh, the Ramayana, um, into a breakup story and associates it with her own personal experience uh, uh, dealing with Having trying to have relationships in the animation industry, uh, and and traveling with that, and so it's a really interesting cultural context, um, and a, a a good different uh, feminist critical the uh, eye towards the events from that that ancient you know Hindu epic. Um, and then you know anytime you want to watch something that really moves go get a Miyazaki film get a Hayao Miyazaki film and just you know forget the story even though the stories are great but just watch the movement and and watch how there's such idiosyncratic for even the smallest smallest elements you know that <clears throat> that can always be a great thing you know for anybody who's interested in motion and animation I love the variety of the things that we brought up as well that goes back to this notion of art can be about anything. We've gone from everything from preserved uh, dead sharks in formaldehyde to altar pieces to animated film to traditional painting. So it's really a rich topic. Well, it's so interesting. While you were while you were sharing about the altar piece, I was like just taken back to a similar experience. When I got to see the Eisenheim altarpiece in Weimar, oh, yeah. Germany, oh, yeah. I sat oh, yeah, in front yeah. of it for literally hours. It was the most time I had ever spent in front of a single work of art, and it was just mesmerizing. There's something yeah. about you know 14th and 15th century oil painted altarpieces that are just 
mind-blowing. But then when Rob was sharing, too, I was thinking about um, at the, I was recently at the Nasher Museum where they have a traveling show up right now called Art for a New Understanding that's all contemporary, modern and contemporary Native American artists. And there's one piece in the show, and of course I can't remember the name of the artist, but it's this, this film that she created of her going into different cultures and performing dances with members of that culture. So she did everything from the merengue to, you know, pop and lock and, you know, doing it with all of these different um, members of different, you know, different parts of, of American culture. The film was so powerful on so many levels because it was just playful and fun to watch. And it just kind of reminded you of how, reminded me rather of how how good art can make me feel and what a great form of expression it is, but it was also really powerful in that she was making this comment on the way that traditional Native American dances have been exploited and appropriated and, um, you know, she was commenting on that by going into these other cultures and performing dances that she, before visiting, these people knew nothing about. Um, so it just, it just, you know, hearing other perspectives on it just reminds me, like you said, that there is there's really no way for me to say this is what it is for me because so many different things can speak to me on so many different levels. Let's uh, look at the other side of the coin briefly. What, what is uh, a, a particular work of art that everyone has told you you're supposed to love and is supposed to be so meaningful but it's never ever quite clicked for you? Well, uh, when I was younger, I still don't appreciate him actually to coming. <laughs> oh no! Oh, De Kooning is just um, well. I was introduced to him through his feminine paintings. Yeah. Oh. Obviously, he has a wounded female internal <laughs> female, but they were just so angry and cutting. And I mean, I just felt them. And I. But I, you got to appreciate that anger he's putting on the canvas there. I just wanted to take it and put it towards him. <laughs> because I felt directed to me, but I know oh, that yeah, it's yeah, different. Yeah. And it's just that was just my reaction to it. Um, I was just had a visceral reaction, and then I was like, "But I'll sit here and talk about it if you like." And you know, like I'll tell students, I can tell them what to do. I wrote all sorts of things, but that's my hidden secret. <laughs> Nobody will hear. I promise. I can't stand the entire Rococo period. <laughs> I, just, I hear that word, and I, and I think of a gilded toilet. <laughs> It's so, pretty uh, gross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's much better. Have you have you seen it in real life though? It's much no, better so in real life. No, that's the thing. Is yeah, probably. Yeah. It's yeah. much much better in real life because when you look at it in a textbook, it, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't care for it either. But when you're in an, in that environment that's created by the architecture and the art and how those things work together and and you imagine the lives that were li li lived in that space, it's it's quite different when you're actually in front of the actual object. I don't particularly like it either. <laughs> well, and when you think about it in contrast to neoclassicism and to the, you know, coming also after this age of enlightenment and, yeah. you know, when you frame it with what came before it and what came yeah. after it, it is this very interesting, although somewhat, like, nauseating, just, you know, <laughs> fluffy, silly, Absolutely ephemeral, you know, yeah. not having to do with reality. Um, I, I like Rococo. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I overdress as well. <laughs> I like over the top and fluffy and 
unreality. <laughs> but Rob, do you like, um, who's the artist who puts together the cloth and, and makes these big installations that um, often make fun of Rococo paintings? Um, oh, I can't believe I can't think uh, of his not name. Ring, it's not ringing a bell. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? Big cloth? Shonabare, Yinka Shonabare. Yeah, we'll have to look that up. Yeah, he does these um, installations where he actually creates oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, African textiles and cool. creates these uh, installations that are um, recreations of figures from Rococo paintings. Yeah. Um, but often they're made with not actual um, fabric from the period. It's like reproduction fabric. No, no, he's, he yeah, makes yeah, all he of the yeah, fabric it's all yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It has to do more with post-colonial yeah. things than, right. than Rococo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, I've never been a huge fan of, of Rembrandt. I mean, people talk about Rembrandt so wonderful, and he is, but I mean, I just, <laughs> there are lots of other really great painters out there, <laughs> period. Uh, sorry, all you Rembrandt fans. But, um, Have you seen his self-portrait at the Met, though? Yes, I've seen, yeah, I've seen, I've seen a lot of his stuff. I've been to his house, and uh, I've seen a lot of Rembrandt, and I can appreciate it as uh, a skilled craftsman, but I, it just doesn't move me the way some other works of art do. Uh, but um, I can appreciate it. I mean, I, I don't particularly like it, and that's something we probably all had to do in our classroom, is try yeah. to convince students to, that Rococo is the best <laughs> yeah. thing that was ever out there, and people it loved it. Meaningful <laughs> and, and, and underneath we're thinking, oh, it's not for me. Yeah. Which is great. I share that. With yeah, you. and that's you know that's the beauty of it is that it cannot be for us, and we can still have appreciation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what a rich conversation today. I feel like we should organize and sell tickets to have people follow behind the four of y'all in a museum <laughs> or a gallery so that uh, we can keep the conversation going. Thanks for uh, a great topic today on Thirty Brave Minutes. Tune in next time when we talk about another interesting subject. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody!